Welcome back, folks. You're listening to the Mark Steiner Show right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I want to remind you that conversations like this and the Mark Steiner Show are brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at W www.mecu.com. Now we're going to go back to our archives in 2001 when I spoke with Terry McMillan about her book, A Day Late and a Dollar Short. We talked about her work, how she writes, and her life. Terry McMillan, welcome. Hi. Good to have you here. Thank you. I was saying to you before the show, and I just may throw this out again for the public. I mean, I often wonder when you have to do these things over and over again. This has to get tiring after a while, talking about the book over and over again because you already you 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 wrote it, you you, re- you wrote it, you stopped writing it because of the tragedy in your life. You started writing it again, you finished it, it's published, and you're still talking about it. <laughs> yes, but you know, I think what it is is when people ask questions that they already know the answer to. That's kind of annoying. Uh huh. But you just skipped over a lot of it, and I appreciate it. <laughs> I will definitely do that. <laughs> One of the things, <laughs> in, we do a lot of programs here on this program about a lot of social issues and a lot of uh, issues facing families and stuff. And a lot of issues in the, in the African American community. And one of the things that strikes me about the issues that we talk about on the air, and something that I think if there's any author in America, you probably are the one who did it, who brought it to the fore, is discussions about the majority of the African-American community, which is middle class. Mm. Um, And I really think in some ways your books early on kind of took that course in a different direction because every other book was always about the pain of a single motherhood in the inner city, of somebody who's a drug addict. And it's real, real stuff, but it's not the majority of the black community. No, it's not. Um... I think, too, I mean, the same could be said for movies mm-hmm. um, for a long time and still kind of persist, actually, that we are are seen in a particular light, almost as if uh, it's a tunnel you look through and there we are. But, I mean, the spectrum is very, very broad in how we live. And I think for the most part, most most African-Americans have jobs, go to work, take care of their families. They're responsible. We have credit. You know what I mean? Drive mm-hmm. Volvos like everybody else. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that, um, and even people in that in that um, economic range, they, you know, I don't care how much money you have, people still have issues. Right. They do have I issues. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't let you off the hook. Some critic I read once, writing about one of your books, said something about, um, if I got it right here, um, complained that... that one of the characters in your book, I forget, I forget what book it was now. It's not even important. Probably Stella. Could be Stella. Sounded too white. Was too white. And I started thinking about that comment and what he was writing in that. And started thinking about maybe it has to do with not race in some senses, but class and human issues. Oh, yeah. But I oh, no, I think I got that twice. You got, I'm sure you have. Got um, <laughs> no, my a long time ago, my would-be editor at a different publishing house, uh-huh. I might add, um, 
in Disappearing Acts, um, when I had submitted it, uh, her name was Zora, the character, was um, basically living off of a trust fund. Her mother had died, and she had left her insurance policy, and she was living off of mm-hmm. it. And my editor at the time suggested, because the book was written from both the male and female characters' point of view, that because Zora was educated um, and she taught school, that she sounded too much like a white girl. Right. And that because she was living off of a trust fund, and basically that her struggle wasn't dark enough, literally and figuratively, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I really resented it. And I ended up going to a different publisher because she wanted me to write the book all from to the male it. character's point of view because she said we'd have a guaranteed bestseller on our hands if you wrote it um, all from uh, Franklin's point of view because she was convinced by the tone and the voice that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I'm not trying to write a bestseller. This is a story that I want to tell, and that's the story I'm going to tell. Um, and then in Stella, because the woman was self-sufficient, she was a, a, a broker, and she she helped sell stocks to corporations to tell them how mm-hmm. to invest their money. And a reviewer basically said she didn't believe that this woman, when she quit her job or got fired, one of the two, that she couldn't believe that she wasn't worried, um, that she had um, enough savvy um, to be able to live for two or three years without freaking out. And I really resented that, I mean, in a major, 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 major way. I mean, this is what this woman was educated to do, to learn how to do. She was doing it, and quite successfully. And, I mean, if you're going to show other people how to invest money, corporations, how to invest money, why wouldn't you take care of your own business first? Mm -hmm. And the fact that, I mean, there are people out here that live off interest. People know how some they, there are people out here Absolutely. that know how to do that, you know. And I just really, it just really annoyed me that because this woman was black, that she didn't have enough um, charisma or common sense to be able to pull that off. And and that's what I, you know, and I, I say, you know, look at television. You know, you I, I have to use the Friends as the example, but I mean, you have a lot of these shows with with white people on them that you don't even know how they make a living. <laughs> I mean, if you take friends, right. those what do they do? They live in these great apartments, and what do they do for a living? If they were, if those people were black, they wouldn't be on television, or they'd be drug dealers, you know. But yet, and still, I have a character who's educated with a background, and she's not believable. It just makes me sick. It, it when I was listening to you just talking about television, I was thinking, I guess if I could throw someone else in the mix who kind of raise the issue of the black middle class to, to put that reality in the face of America, which they don't see, I guess the other person would be Bill Cosby on television. That's said, true. Who, who raised that. And that, and I, but I think it's on two levels. I mean, A, do you think that the stuff you've done has begun and stuff Bill Cosby has done has kind of begun to change that perception in America of who black folks are in this society? I don't think it's just us. I think it's, there are a whole lot of people out here. I, I mean... Oh, Bill and I can't take all the credit. I was going to give you all the credit. I'm just just a little bit then. <laughs> no, I think we all contribute to um, everybody becoming a little bit more cognizant of the fact that that our lives matter on a whole lot of levels, and that you know, I mean, that, that there's validity 
in all aspects of it, just like we have gangster rappers out here who and, and gangbangers who are killing each other and blowing each other's brains out. You know, there are people out there in the community trying to prevent that. And there are people that live right down the street from them who are afraid, but there are people that go to church every Sunday and who pay their bills um, and who are making sure that their kids are educated. So there's this 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 whole the line of demarcation sometimes is 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 very very thin and long. Thin. Yeah. The, the, the book you're, you're you're touring now with a day late and a dollar short. Um this family that you have written about in this book. The prices. The prices. Mm-hmm. They 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 in reading the stuff about you, about your own life and growing up. Is there it's not an accident that there are five kids in this family and there were Five kids in your family and... Four. Four. That is close. Close. Um, s- strong mother, sick, asthma. Yeah, that's... My mother was... Right, right, right. Yeah. And that, and that, and that when, you, when you write... Clearly, this is not about your family. But when writers mm-hmm. write, I mean, they have to write from their own experience. They mm-hmm. take things that come out of them and from their lives. So, I mean, sometimes that must be kind of a tenuous situation to, to write about things that are so close to people that you care about, but it's not really them. And how they might perceive it, and how the rest of the world might perceive it. Well, you have to kind of really exaggerate things and lie. You you fabricate <laughs> things, basically. Um, you do. I mean, there are always people. I don't care how much you alter something and change it. There are always people that will swear, "That's me. That's me. That's me." Usually, when they're virtuous, um, but sometimes not, depending on how much money they don't have. It has a lot to do with it, um, <laughs> so we'll see what happens here. But I don't, I don't, I don't think that I don't foresee any problems. Um, and you also raised I, some serious. I'm sorry, finish what you said. No, saying. no, no, no. I was going to say yesterday in Philadelphia, um, I met a woman who said, "You won't believe this, but my name is Paris, and my grandmother's name is Viola." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." And. <laughs> And you know, and is there a lawyer behind night, you? <laughs> and last night I met somebody who said, my family's last name is Price. And I said, whoa, that's deep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were, they were, I don't know what I'm supposed to do when people say this, you know, but, um, that it's not about your family. <laughs> no, I don't know what they're even right, inferring. Right, right. You know, I mean, Price is such a, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say. You know, the, the book itself. Um, it raises some. I mean, it's it raises a lot of very serious issues. I mean, about families, but about this particular family, um, the issue of abuse and sexual abuse inside of families, and how families handle it and how families hide it. Well, I'll put it this way: I think that in this case, um, to some extent, I don't know so much if it's hidden as it is people are blinded. Um, want to be blinded to it or are blinded to it are blinded to it um, one one character to some extent is you know I think try to push it away uh, push it in the background and make and pretend as if it doesn't really exist that it didn't that it's not having an effect on who he is when mm-hmm. in fact just his awareness of it um, and the reality of, of the fact that he has tried to push it aside does in fact mean that it's looming a lot larger than he thinks. And I think another character um, 
doesn't want to believe that certain kinds of behavior um, are actually happening. In her family. Yeah. Uh, she's a little stupid. But, um... <laughs> the sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um... You know, everything <laughs> Everything comes out. Everything always has to come out. So when you said, when you called her, is it Jasmine, is that her name? Je- the sister? Janelle. 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 The, the, when you called her a little stupid... <laughs> Uh, some people would say that, well, don't uh, authors have to like their characters? <laughs> I do like her. Okay. I do like her. But I don't, I mean, you know, just like your friends and family, you don't like them all the time. <laughs> right. You know, sometimes people get on your nerves and, and family members in particular. I mean, that's one of the reasons behind writing the book that I realized, you know, that um, in my own family, sometimes I've had uh, my sisters say things to me and get upset with me about things that I didn't even think they were justified in getting upset with me about, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But I just started to realize over the years that as the oldest of five, you know, and especially since my mom passed away, or our mom passed away, that I felt like I was filling her shoes. So when they didn't do certain things the way that I thought she would approve of, I would tell them, you know, you need to get it together. Or that is really, really beneath you. Or that's really just stupid. And here are some of the ramifications of or repercussions of what if you do this this way. Haven't you thought about that? Aren't you old enough to have some fortitude, some foresight? I mean, come on, you know. And then I'll turn around. And they'll say, well, you know, what you did was pretty stupid too, Terry. <laughs> you know, and they're right. And we as siblings know how to push each other's buttons. Well, that's my other point. We are button pushers. Yeah, not just button pushes, but I think sometimes um, some of us, we don't do it with as much malice, but sometimes it feels that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the harm comes in, that it's not necessarily um, intended to, to um, really wound you for a long period of time, but sometimes those wounds do last. Um, just again, thinking about the, the, the latest book that you just that you wrote, I, I was thinking about it in terms of uh, something I saw a quote you said once about uh, Ring Lardner and about how his books as a young writer, as a young woman, grabbed you, um, that he wrote about the tragic, but the tragic can make you crack up reading about the tragic. Well, you know, I... I I thought of his work as, you know, the same way I do my own. I think of it as tragic comedy. Right, Um, right. Because he wrote about really serious issues, um, a lot of familial issues, um, but there was a lot of humor Mm -hmm. in his work, and it was very conversational. And, I mean, in one story that I absolutely love, Haircut and Other Stories, or Haircut, rather. His stories. Ring Lardner, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah but the right, story right, that he right. wrote that I just knocked me out was called Haircut. And he has a collection called Haircut and Other Stories. Um, and a guy is sitting in a barber chair and he starts talking to this guy and then he ends up telling the story. And you get so immersed in it, you don't even you forget that he's talking to this guy mm-hmm. in this barber chair. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you he finishes, you, he just says, cut it wet or dry. <laughs> And it is just wonderful. And I mean, I was just so blown away by not only the ending, but how he got there and how I actually forgot that I was being told a story. Mm -hmm. And 
it just knocked me out. And I just said, you know what? And I mean, I was, well, I wasn't studying him because I had read, um, um, I keep wanting to say Catch-22, but... Um, Catcher in the Rye? Catcher in the Rye. J.D. Salinger? That's how I discovered Ring Lardner. And apparently J.D. Salinger had been influenced by him as well because that's why I'm sure he put him in his book in the first place. Right. Um, and, and I can tell, by, I could tell then by, by Catcher in the Rye, the tone of it. I, I could tell that he had been influenced by Ring Lardner. I could, you could just hear it. So I just figured if they could get away with it, then I didn't have to pretend. I didn't have to fake it and try to pretend like I was Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or Gloria Naylor or Zora Neale Hurston. Well, Zora Neale is, I mean, her vernacular, it was pretty close to the same tone. Right. Um, but that I could write the way I talked or at least the way that my characters talked, and it was okay. So this reading of Ring Lardner was kind of an epiphany in some ways in terms of your writing and thinking about how to write. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he. I, yeah, I, I. I didn't have to. I didn't have to worry about pretense. Uh huh. Um, and trying to imitate other writers, I didn't. Ha- I didn't worry about it as much. Well, me. When you say that, that's interesting. You say that. I'm gonna go to the phone here, but I, it's interesting you say that because when you when you think about. And I, I don't like to pigeonhole writers. That's the worst thing in the world. Well, you're a black writer. You're a woman writer. You're this kind of writer. But, but coming out of the world you come out of, which is the black world and is a black woman, that when you tell the story about Ring Lardner. And how that affected your writing. I mean, maybe that's part of what made your books explode and set them apart from Alice Walker, who's a great author, but writing about rural South and the whole rural world, which is not a world that exists today. But your world was your world that you wrote about. Coming out of your experience, and maybe that's one of the things that set it apart from the other authors of that moment. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. I just thought I'd throw it out see what you thought. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, all I know is is that um, I think that writing about my own experiences um, and in a contemporary, I mean, about contemporary experiences, things that I was seeing or feeling mm-hmm. or experiencing or observing, whatever, um, I think that had something to do with it as well, in addition to the tone mm-hmm. and the language. Um, because I was basically talking the way a lot of people talk today. And it's accessible. The way you write is accessible. And, and not just... Some people might say you, you're accessible to black women, but that's too narrow. I mean, there are too many people I've talked to who have heard you were coming on this show uh, who are not black, who are white, who are women, who are white men as well, who have said, she's coming on, I, I love her books. They just talk to me. Oh, yeah, well, the guy who just left, the sexual dysfunction guy... He said he really liked my books, too. I don't know what that means. We can explore that in another show. <laughs> can I ask you to put your headphones up, Terry? We're going to take a couple of calls here. Okay. Lauren, in your car, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Good hi, afternoon. Um, I wanted to just make a couple of comments. <clears throat> One is my husband and I have both read your books and really, really have enjoyed them. Um, and I'm so Thank looking you. forward to reading your next book. Um, and And... Your discussion earlier about uh, the comment that Stella or one of the other characters was um, the whitest black person or too white um, is interesting. I, I'm white. My husband is, is black. Um, somebody made that comment to him, and I really never understood. About him, you mean? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I really never understood what in the world were they saying, and your discussion actually helped me understand that a little better. I, I certainly don't agree with it. My husband grew up... Um, 
uh, dirt poor. I mean, some of the stories that he's told me just can, can really break your heart. He is uh, the only person in his family who went to college. It was a struggle for him day to day just to afford to go to college and to be able, uh, you know, to eat and, and pay tuition, etc. <laughs> he is currently a senior executive, um, very high level, at a local Baltimore company. And, okay. you know, he's the American dream, black or mm-hmm. white. And, yep. you know, when somebody said this to him, um, my knowing his entire background, I couldn't even imagine what they were saying. I thought it was... Um, uh, terribly presumptuous and, and quite honestly ignorant on their part. And, and you're right. I think the characters that you have in your book show um, a, a different perspective of, of black America. And I'm not saying that the other perspective doesn't exist, right. but we need the commentary that you present. We need the figures that you present in your books because they're just as much of a, of a reality um, as, as uh, you know, the people who may be presented in, in some of the movies and on some of the television shows, et cetera, et cetera. So I applaud your characters. I love your characters. And after hearing you speak, I think you are an absolute delight, and I just can't wait to get to your next book. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, I appreciate it. Any thoughts on that larger issue she raised about... No, she said it. Okay, fine. She said it, and I really appreciate her comments. Jim in Baltimore, you're on the air. Mark, thanks for taking my call. Sure, thanks for calling. I'm a person of low vision, and I'm wondering if uh, Terry has uh, recorded any of her uh, books. Oh, yeah, they're on audio. They're on audio. Do you read them? Yes. Are you the one who reads them, Terry, on the audio? Yes and no. Um, I've read parts of them it depends when there are a lot of characters like in this new one this new one yeah i didn't read the male characters and i read two of the female voices Oh, okay and alfrey woodard read some Uh uh-huh and another um actor whose name is slipping and then there's an entire unabridged that's an abridged version and then there's another unabridged but all the books some of them even have um large print uh for people Uh who have um vision problems but i don't know if this one is or not it is yeah it I'm, is it, it has been. you can find it in large in print. large print yes right. thank you all right You're jim welcome. take care bye-bye you just mentioned alfrey woodard and i and i maybe when you said that she popped in my head and so did angela bassett and other people that you've worked with mm-hmm. i mean the, the, those two men in particular to me anyway and i'm just curious your take on this um are two of the finest actresses in america kind of bar none the way they, right the way they approach characters and who they are i agree uh, I love them both. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, and there was um, this: the different people write can write a book or a play, and then certain actors can take up the role of interpreting an author or a playwright's work. Mm-hmm. Is that Angela Bassett's role right now? In some ways, taking the stuff that you do. Can you see her in this new book? If it was a movie. I mean, do you do you think about her as somebody who kind of plays out your characters? No, it's just worked out that the last two films, I think she um, she was appropriate for, definitely. But I'm not thinking of this book as a movie at all, uh-huh. period. You're not? No, not at all. Too much? Too big? Too much well, stuff in the book? all of it. All of it. I just want to think of it as a book. Right for, now? For a while. For a let while. Let me tell you. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to think of it as a movie. I really don't. But I think Angela is sort of... Um, our Merle Streep. Yes. You know? Um, She's all and so Mer- is Alfrey. And so right. is Alfrey. They can play almost any role. Almost any role. Absolutely. No, I think the only reason that they don't is because they're black women on screen. But they're just... Uh, Angela Bassett, to me, I think, is 
one of the top five actresses in America today. She is. Without a doubt. She is. I've seen her in plays where she just made me fall to my knees watching her on stage. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, in in um, in the in the, the book you just finished again, uh, there's one the brother. I'm always bad at names, even from books. I know. Lewis. L- Lewis. Now, this guy has some serious issues to deal with, and one of the things that strikes me about the characters in this book is every family is is full of complexity, and it's striking how you touch on this in the sense that. How in one family, people can be so different, given where they were born That's in the funny. family, how they were raised, the era they were raised in, and how different they can be. Because all these characters in this book, these these siblings are very different. Well, that's another reason why I, I wanted to write about a family, because, you know, I mean, if you just really take a peek at any of your friends um, or your own family, it seems that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was another one of the questions that I have. Um, sometimes, you know, you can have a number of people that come out of one household. They all end up going in different directions. And everybody has a different personality, of course, which we should. But at the same time, there are also, I mean, everybody also has a different memory of the way we grew up. Um, some people, oh, yes. I mean, everybody's recollection is a little different. And, you know, you and I was curious because, you know, I ended up becoming pretty popular and and very successful um, for anyway. And you're the oldest. I'm the oldest. And I wanted to know and I'll put it this way. I've seen in other families as well what happens when someone else is a little bit more successful than the others. And, you know, I mean, it can cause a lot of problems. It really can. And if somebody feels like they got short shrift, they got left, they got looked over, they didn't get an, as much love, the baby of the family sometimes is a spoiled, rotten brat or gets away with murder. Um, and the oldest, despite what a lot of people think, and I can testify, you know, has a lot of responsibility. And, and it's a burden. You don't think of it at the time <clears throat> so much as a burden. But over the years, it, it becomes just that. Um because people look up to you, they expect a lot from you, and it's one of the reasons why I was interested in all, in birth order in in telling this story as well. So there are different personalities, different people go in different directions, people move. As adult children, I think also, um, you know, our perception of each other is very, very warped sometimes. We don't see each other as accurately as we think we do. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we also don't see ourselves quite as accurately, quite as, accurately mm-hmm. um, as, as we think we do because everybody else is out there and we think that we're on this pedestal and that we have it all together or if we have issues, <laughs> at least ours are under control, right. you know, but that's not necessarily the case either. But because even in your character in, in the book, the, the, the older sister... Who uh, has her issues with drugs? Yep, with um, legal drugs. Yeah, yeah, that makes it better. Mm-hmm. Makes it better because there's a lot of people out here who get away with stuff and can justify it. That's why I love that little scene in the book where she tried to get more drugs from the dentist. Yeah, he called. Yeah, but I could have told some better stories, but but I wanted to. I wanted to some much better um, drug stories. Next book. No, I don't think I can go there again. <laughs> but I know somebody who 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 overdid it, and and 
shaved her dog. Shaved her dog. She shaved. She was trimming her dog. Oh, because she, she was high was, and she, she just was kept under the on going. influence. I don't know how many pills she had taken, but she told me the story. And um, <laughs> it's not funny. She but... was drinking too, uh-huh. which I think is very scary. But she said she was drinking and she had taken like a whole lot of these painkillers. And uh, she woke up in the morning and her dog was bald. <laughs> it was a big dog. I don't remember what kind of dog it was, but she was trimming him. She just got a little carried away. I wanted to put that in the book so bad. It would have been a funny scene. Oh, but she would have really been a little more zonkers than she actually was. So. <laughs> so you, you, that, I was thinking a couple of things when you just said that about this book. So let me say the first thing that was in my head first. When um, you wrote this book, mm-hmm. and this book in some ways, I mean, there were very, very funny scenes in this book. I mean, they keep, it keeps you laughing as you're reading it. But there's some very dark scenes as well, just about what the people in this family are going through. And you started this book... Before your mother died, mm-hmm. and then you, for I read, you stopped writing for almost two years and then went back to it. And a lot of that is inside this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it seems that maybe in some ways, uh, the, other, the, books I, the, the last few books you've written, this one seems in some ways, there's a, there's a hidden power in this book that can overwhelm you, overwhelm you sometimes. And I wonder how much of that might have to do with what went through you to write this book because of your mother, because of your friend, because of the hiatus for two years. Um, well, to me, it was, I don't want to use the word more important, but I guess I can, because I can't think of a better one. Mm -hmm. Um, it was really important to me that I understand the nature of loss, um, and the role that family really can play in your life and how much of it we actually take for granted. Um, and I think a lot of that came very, very, became very, very, has become very clear to me in part or in particular since my mother has been gone. Um, and a lot of our roles and relationships as fam- with my sisters and brother and then things that I've also seen, um, it ch- it's changing. Um, and I just wanted to make some sense out of that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what this story help- helped me do. It's also the notion of the complexity that can lead to forgiveness. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there, there are things that happen within a family that seem to me that a lot of people are, are less forgiving of family members than they are of friends and lovers to some extent. I mean, there are some really cruel things that, that people that you love can do to you. I mean, And sometimes not consciously. Consciously or unconsciously. Right. It doesn't, sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, pain is pain. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and and people forgive a boyfriend or a husband or a girlfriend for something that they've done. But then a family member can do something of less um, serious, less... seriousness and we charge them and hold them emotionally hostage for the rest of their lives almost and don't let up. And I don't I don't understand why that is. You know, we let a lot of other people off the hook, but we don't let our families off the hook. And and I don't I don't think it's fair. <laughs> I just don't. Because friends and lovers obviously come and go. But families are there forever.
Hello, I'm Mark Steiner. My guest this hour is Terry McMillan. We all know Waiting to Exhale, how Stella got her groove back. There are other great books from the past, like Mama. There's a new one out called A Day Late and a Dollar Short. She's touring the country. So with this now, please join us, 410-662-8780, as we talk with Terry McMillan, 410-662-8780. We talked earlier about J.D. Sam, about, um, about Ring Lardner. But there are other people who must have grabbed you, because you went to, let's see if I have this right, you got your bachelor's degree from Berkeley? Mm-hmm, yeah. usually, yep. And you got an MFA in filmmaking? No, I'm no, a graduate in... school dropout. A grad? You dropped out? Yep. <laughs> and just yeah. started writing? Um, I guess you could say yes. I mean, I worked as a word processor for law firms while I was writing. And your first book was? Mama. Mama, right. Now, mm-hmm. you wrote that book without an advance, without a publisher. You just wrote the book. I wrote a draft of the book, yeah, and then and then Houghton Mifflin bought it in its early unreadable stage, <laughs> <laughs> and um, they they displayed a certain amount of faith in me, and then I rewrote it. Now, that's interesting. With an advance. With an with an advance, you rewrote it, but <laughs> yeah, but the 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 idea that um, that was what year when that when that happened with Houghton Mifflin. Eighty six. Eighty six. So that the idea that they took a book from an unknown, was this the only publisher you sent it to? Mm-hmm. So that was pretty rare in itself. Yeah, yeah, for me, it was. For almost anybody, <laughs> to have a book sent to a publisher, never written a book before, and they just... Well, I, I, sent, I submitted it for a fellowship program that they were offering. Uh-huh. I had submitted stories to them, but I had written this novel and gotten a different fellowship through um, Columbia University that in, enabled me to take a fiction writing workshop at Columbia, um, separate and apart from the film school thing. That mm-hmm, was all mm-hmm. different. Um, and that's how, and they ended up saying, we like the stories, we like the voices of the stories, but how about this novel that we that you told us about? Can we see that? And that's when I kind of freaked out because I knew it wasn't ready to be read. I see. <laughs> and they just said, let us decide. So I did, and they bought it. When did you know that you were going to be a writer? When did that? When did in, in did you know that you this is something you had to do? Um, I don't know if there was ever a real time when I knew it. It was just something that I sort of started to do when I was in college. I started writing poetry, and then it sort of expanded, and I ended up. I took a writing workshop from Ishmael Reed uh-huh. when I was at UC. Was, and, that's interesting. And I, I started writing stories. And I just really liked the places that I could go emotionally with them and how much better I felt as a result of writing them. Um, and so it was more or less like a hobby to me mm-hmm. because I didn't know how you made a living as a writer. I mean, it didn't even cross my mind. It didn't even dawn on me that one day I might be able to pay my bills writing. So... You know. Let alone know you can retire on your writing. <laughs> Say that again? Let alone know that you can retire on your writing. Well, yeah. But. <laughs> it, it, uh, the, the, just the, the, the idea of, um, of being able to do that. I mean, there's so many people who want to take what they feel and think and put it on paper. The paper and get that out. I mean, is it something that you think that came from inside or a combination of inside and the fact you studied with people like Ishmael Reed and others? who really critiqued and worked on your work? I think it's a combination of all of it. Um, you know, you read a lot, 
Um, you realize the effect and impact that other people's work when it's really powerful that it has on you emotionally. And at the same time, you realize that there are, there's a lot of angst, a lot of things that trouble you and that you find um, dissension, dissatisfaction in looking around you and even in your own life, things that you observe, which is, for me, what makes um, my work and, and some writers' work feel more autobiographical than it sometimes is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you just take that and, and you sort of put it under a microscope because you want to look at it a little more closely. And that's how I end up. That's one of the reasons why I write stories, because I just I really want to get a better take on stuff and people. And and that's one of the reasons why I've started doing it and continue to do it. Is, is there another piece? You, are you working now on a new one? You know, I just thought it was about it. Just curious if you're working on a new one. Well, I have I have <clears throat> sort of an idea that I've started, but I'm not sure yet how far I want to take it. <laughs> now, you're one of those folks who gets up and those early morning writers, or are you one of those late at night writers? Early, early morning. Early morning. Crack of dawn before the daylight hits. Whoa. When everybody's asleep. Quiet time. Definitely. Definitely. Because I go to bed pretty... Well, I'm a, I'm a 10 o'clock. I can watch the news and maybe the monologue on Jay Leno. Does <laughs> that put you right to sleep? No, I like him. <laughs> I like his monologue and and David Letterman's. Um, sometimes we switch back and forth, but after that, you know, by midnight I'm in I'm a, I'm knocked out. But if, when I'm working, mm-hmm. when I'm writing, I don't stay up until midnight. No, I get up at five o'clock in the morning, usually quarter to five. So, where I usually work about from five o'clock, four or five hours. Disciplined life. I don't see it as disciplined. I mean, I like that time of morning. Mm-hmm. I love watching the sun come mm-hmm. up. I love it. Mm-hmm. I like the frost when it's on the grass. I like to see when it disappears. Um, I, I just love it, and it's quiet, and nobody, the phone's not ringing. I just, I love it. There's no mistake why that's a very holy time in many cultures, that early morning. Yeah, um, that's true. As someone who, I mean, who, when you write, I mean, you love the words you write often. So you wouldn't put them on paper if you didn't. Um, and then when you get to be known... You set yourself up for all kinds of critique and criticism from people when they read your work, for whatever reason they want to critique it. And you've been kind of attacked as being anti-male at times because of waiting to exhale in some other books. And, and um, uh, of not being a writer with great depth, some people might have written. I mean, how does it, what, I mean, it, and I know that, that you're, you're obviously, from your work and even meeting you here briefly on this show, that you're, you, you have a lot of strength. You're a strong woman who has, can take a lot of stuff, I'm sure. But that must weigh on you after a while, to have that constantly thrown at you when you put your heart and soul into a piece. Well, you know, um, I don't take it as personally... Sometimes I do, you know, when when I hear about the thing about, you know, well, with Stella and how she's not, you know, how was she able to right. accomplish? That kind of stuff gets on my nerves, <laughs> but, but not enough to cause me to lose any sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to write uh, write some dreadful letter. Um, I mean, I understand I've just gotten like a, a terrible, terrible review. Some New York Times. On this latest book? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, all of them get bad reviews. Right. Um, <laughs> then people buy them and read them. Yeah, but it comes with the territory. I mean, that's just the way it is. I don't care what area you're in. I don't care what area, in, especially in the arts if you, that you're in. Um, you know, I mean, even Michael Jordan has a bad day, 
or had a bad day. And when he did, people dogged him out. You know, uh-huh. oh, poor Michael. You know, um, but I can't take it personally because I wrote the story that I wanted to write. And I'm, it worked for me. Mm-hmm. And my biggest hope is that it has a positive effect on my readers. Critics get paid to criticize as far as I'm concerned. They're looking for things that are wrong. Some of them are just frustrated writers, and they also sometimes are annoyed because you didn't write the story they wanted you to write. And, you know, that's their personal problem as far as I'm concerned. And I can't do anything about that. And if they just, for whatever reason, and sometimes, too, when you become a popular writer, they are pissed at you because you are popular. And so they they cut you to pieces because of that. Sometimes they review you and your reputation and not your book. And I think that's what the woman in the New York Times did, and that's why I'm not even going to give her the satisfaction of reading it. (laughs) Let me go to the phones. Kim in Bel Air, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Kim. I just wanted to say what a joy it is to hear Miss McMillan on your show. Great. I haven't read any of her stuff since Way Into Exhale, so I can't wait to read the new book. And I did want to comment about how you treat your uh, family members worse than you treat your friends. And <laughs> I think that that must happen when our children are very young, because I know my son treats me a lot worse than he would ever <laughs> treat any of his friends. And I never really thought about it that way. You know, I know we do treat our own adult family members worse, but uh, I think that's an interesting point. <laughs> And I can't wait to read your new book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. I wasn't talking about children the way they abuse their parents. So, you know, spank his butt. No, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. Leon in Baltimore, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, uh, Leon. Terry, it's great to hear you uh, uh, talking. And, Mark, thank you for bringing her on. My pleasure. Uh, I've only read a couple of your books, but uh, and I'm going to buy this next one, A Day Late, A Dollar Short, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, close where do you get your inspiration? Um, I get my inspiration from basically everywhere. You know, um, sometimes it's reading a newspaper article. It could be a magazine article. It could be seeing somebody at a store, in the grocery store, my own family, my friends, people that I see. It can be somebody I'm sitting next to on the airplane, a conversation that I might have. You get it from everywhere. So your stories uh, and your inspiration would not necessarily be black-oriented or centered? No, they are. I pretty much write about black people. (laughs) Well, I'm black, so I enjoy it. Well, thanks, but it doesn't mean that what happens to us doesn't happen to other people. Right. Okay. All right. So this latest book can be applied across the lines. Most of it. Yeah, I thought a lot of it can. I mean, it's about a black family, but but it's it's the the stuff in there is universal in terms of what families yeah. go through. I think. Oh, I see. Is yeah. it available now? Yes. Free at all, your, your local bookstore. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you. Coming back to, to I guess a little bit what he said, I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about actually the women in your book, even in this book. Um, there's a thing that, that that kind of a strain that goes through all the women. This, I don't know what to call it. But it's like woman's autonomy. It's like women standing up. Mm-hmm. There's always someone in your book who really personifies a woman saying, okay, that's where it is. I can take care of it. Well, I don't, you know, I don't believe in writing about passive characters, period. <laughs> Particularly women. Um, there's enough passivity out here as it is that we're victims, you know, and we're, I don't believe that 
fictional characters should be reactors. Otherwise, they are just passive. Mm-hmm. You know, if things just happen to them and then they respond, I find those kind of people in life, and particularly in literature, boring. Um, which is one reason why I think so many people start out books about weather. You know, and then they have to build up to, you know, somebody was looking out of the window. Well, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, you know, I just think that a lot of women... I want to write about strong women who have their own sense of self, even if they are to some extent confused. Like when I say Janelle is a little stupid. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't mean she's like dumb, dumb, you know, stupid she just, about life. She just doesn't make some of the best decisions. Right. But at the same time, she has this quest. She has a, she's in a, on a search to find her place in the world. She may not be going about it the way that I would go about it or you might go about it, but she is trying and for that, I give anybody credit. I don't care what it is that you're trying to do. If it's give up drugs or go to church or raise your kid, as long as you are trying, then I give people credit for that. And those are the kind, the kinds of women that I try to portray in my books, that um, they do have somewhat of a sense of self, and they don't really rely on other people um, for to validate them, um, and especially men. Especially men. In particular. To validate their lives. Yes. Right. Oh, Viola. That's why she was like, see you, Cecil. <laughs> well, it's about 38 years long You know, enough. I mean, she loved him, <laughs> but the bottom line was... <laughs> go back to the phones. Well, Cecil needed to go. Tim, on your cell phone, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, I Tim. I was inspired to call because I really value when I hear someone speaking from their heart. And I hear you doing that. And I, I probably would not have picked up your book, but I think because... You're an honest person, and you call it like call the shots like they are. I will now. I will. Thank you. I also you. want to say that what you were saying earlier about uh, not forgiving family members when you would forgive friends and associates mm-hmm. um, really speaks to my heart. I've not spoken to some of my family for more than 20 years, uh, and I think I will initiate a dialogue. Good. Now. Pick up the phone. Uh, good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good luck. You're ready. <laughs> Good luck. It's rough with families, you know. Wow. They, they are what you have. They're there forever. They're not going anywhere. Tim McMillan, it's been an absolute joy to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I, I really, it. really enjoyed this book a great deal. A Day Late and a Dollar Short. It's just a lovely book. Thank you so much for writing it and for being in the studio. Thank you Thank for you. inviting me. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our associate producer is Calvin Perry. Our editing producer is Ali Post. And our engineer is Andrea Melton. Theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast of Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.